0: Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, LucasFilm Animation. This is Looking at LucasFilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at LucasFilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at LucasFilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z, is Skyping in from the surface of Hoth, or, or at least it feels like it.
1: It certainly does. It actually was a great little combo on Twitter about what's the coldest planet, Hoth or Scipio. Scipio is, of mm-hmm. course, a much more obscure Star Wars planet, but we everyone agreed that Hoth is the coldest because it doesn't have too many settlements there, at least not ones that are safe to be you on know, without a lot of prep work and you got to dodge all the wampas which i had to do this past week during this wonderful polar vortex and it was pretty crazy
0: we didn't get the weather that you guys got how cold with the windchill did it get out in your neck of the country
1: i woke up and i have a an accuweather app that tells you what the, the temperature is with the windchill or the heat index it mm-hmm. was negative 53 when i woke up in Illinois. And and apparently it was colder in Illinois, especially in Chicago, than it was in Antarctica or Siberia that day. I mean, that's pretty crazy.
0: Just to double back to hot for for a minute. Okay. So I don't need to tell you about where they shot the exteriors for the Empire. I mean, obviously, fenced Norway back in March of, of 79. And you know the stories. As soon as they got there, the worst winter in 50 years in Northern Europe happened. And They had 18 inches of snowfall, but in this case, the temperature only dropped to 20 below zero. So, t-shirt weather, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. I'm
1: practically a Skywalker, and I didn't even need to hide inside a
0: Tauntaun. Given how cold it was, did this, in fact, compel you to break out Columbia's limited edition? It's the Empire Strikes Back-inspired jacket. It's not an exact copy, right? The parka it did and i and i certainly wore it.
1: Columbia when this came out last month, mm. they were kind enough to send me a jacket as a Star Wars social media influencer. So i definitely wore it and that thing is fantastic. I mean, it is the warmest coat i have ever worn. I get compliments on it all the time. Plus i feel like i'm i'm taking part in the Empire Strikes back. I remember those behind the scenes images of Carrie mm-hmm. Fisher and, and Mark Hamill and Urban Kirshner, of course, wearing these things. So they got the authentic ones that a collector has. Uh, his mm-hmm. name is Gus. And he loaned it to them. And they tried to replicate as close as humanly possible. And boy, it is, it's, a, it's a masterpiece of a jacket if there is such a thing. Gus
0: Lopez is his name. Very cool. And this was a limited edition jacket. It was made available on December 7th of last year. And there was such demand for it. I mean, it, it sold out almost immediately both in the stores and online. And given that, that Columbia was gracious enough to give you a jacket, I'm I'm not going to be crass enough to talk about how much it cost to originally get it. But the interesting thing is if, if you are looking on the secondary market to chase down one of these beauties, the extra small, which is $569, wow. if, on the other hand, you're Grimorian guard-sized, as I am, you need that double extra large, and those right now, $1,250 on eBay. Wow. Yes. That's a doozy. That is. But again, it sounds like a wonderful jacket. and It is. If you bet on the right team for the Super Bowl, perhaps you have a little extra coin lying around now, and you can spring for one of these things on the secondary market. Speaking of which, though, when you folks are listening to this show, Super Bowl 53 will be over. Dan and I, however, we're recording this on Friday, February 1st, so we have no idea who won and how the game turned out and that sort of thing. But one thing I do know is what my friends at Disney Studios told me didn't happen during the game, and that was the the teaser trailer for Episode 9 wasn't shown over the course of this typically four-hour-long broadcast, and this frustrates me, Dan. I'm now zero for two in predictions, so... At least you're consistent, though. And the thing is, initially, this seemed like a safe bet because last year, during the Super Bowl 52, they actually did the equivalent of a teaser for a teaser trailer. Okay. They showed, what, like a minute of the solo trailer? In fact, I think yeah. only at the very last moment of this thing you get to see... A shot of, of Han's face.
1: Yeah, at the very end, they show Alden Ehrenreich a close-up of him. Kind of, it looks like he's going up to a door, and he can't mm-hmm. really quite make out his face, but you can see his eyes. The way it's lit, it's very mysterious. So you can tell by the hair that it's Han Solo, but it's not Harrison Ford. But it's uh, it was pretty well done. But it, it was it was very very vague. Of course, as
0: a teaser, teaser trailer would be the commercial on the Super Bowl actually ends with trailer tomorrow. So I mean, it would, again, a tease. For the teaser. Anyway, getting back to the teaser for episode 9, I have been told the teaser trailer is cut. People in Burbank who've seen footage from this thing and were impressed. They it, it said, it, in particular, it's going to wow diehard Star Wars fans. So why wasn't this thing part of this year's Super Bowl? Believe it or not, supposedly the Patriots played a part in Disney's decision. I realized that there are a lot of football fans, in fact, most football fans in the United States, who hate the Patriots. The ratings for last year's Super Bowl kind of bear that out. 103.4 million people tuned in to NBC to watch the Philadelphia Eagles trounce the, the, the Patriots 41-33. to 33. But when you look at the ratings for Super Bowl 51... They had 111.3 million people tune in to watch the Patriots uh, beat the Atlanta Falcons. The viewership for the Super Bowl last year fell off by 7%. And according to internal surveys that the NFL did in the wake of that ratings drop, which made, by the way, Dan, that year's broadcast, the least watched Super Bowl since 2009. And and what they found is that the Patriots played a a very large part in people opting out of tuning in to Super Bowl 53. A lot of people, for lack of a better term, had Tom Brady fatigue. So here we are with the Patriots back at the Super Bowl again. And just in case you're keeping track at home, since 1997, the Patriots have been to the Super Bowl 10 times.
1: The word on the streets, they're pretty good.
0: What are they saying about the Los Angeles Rams?
1: The thing about the Rams is that they um, they have this new coach who's very young, and they've got a mm-hmm. young quarterback, so they're basically like the up-and-comers, sort of the, the reverse side of Belichick and Brady, the coach and quarterback of the Patriots, but they're the younger ones. They're the new kids on the block, and they're really mm-hmm. good. They they had a really exciting game against New Orleans Saints where the Saints could have easily went to the Super Bowl if not for a, a penalty that didn't show up, but overall, they're underdogs. I think people know Tom Brady's basically Michael Jordan in the fourth quarter, and that If he gets a chance, he's probably going to make something happen. So I think they're favored. Patriots, that is.
0: When you have a Super Bowl matchup, especially from the television side, you want large groups of passionate fans who are willing to tune in for four hours. But the problem with the Los Angeles Rams is up until 2015, they were the St. Louis Rams. And so you don't exactly have a passionate base of fans out in Southern California. And... There's a fear right now that the the rating slide that started with Super Bowl 52 will continue with Super Bowl 53 and let's talk about what it costs to secure airtime for a commercial in the Super Bowl. Like you know, last year they were charging 5 million dollars for a single 30-second spot. And even with last year's ratings fall off, the price crept up in 2019 for for Super Bowl 53, it's now costing corporations 5,250,000 for each 30-second ad that they, they'd like to show the course of the show. And Disney, they're ponying up. But it's interesting what they've chosen to promote. We're going to have Avengers Endgame. That's being released April 26th of this year. We're going to have Aladdin. And the interesting thing about the, the Aladdin ad is it's supposedly going to be the first time we get to see Will Smith as the genie. But that comes out on, on May 24th of this year. And then... They're going to do something with Toy Story 4, but they're going to do what they're calling a sneak peek at this Pixar movie, but it's going to run after the Super Bowl kickoffs at 630. If they're lucky, that means this single air between 10 and 1030, which doesn't make much sense to me for a family-friendly film, but... You and I have gone back and forth about Star Wars resistance and, and by the way, do we take advantage of the polar vortex and being trapped in the house to catch up on that or I uh, you know what? I'm doing pretty
1: well. I've got an interview with some of the cast coming next week, so I did my due diligence and caught up and I've gotta say I've done a one eighty on the show.
0: Really? Yeah, oh, it's uh,
1: it's it's raised the stakes and I, I and it's it's more than just a one note thing. Mm-hmm. They've kind of explored different aspects of CAS and what's going on on that base and it, mm-hmm. it's really become much more compelling I'm, I'm excited about it now
0: how do you feel about the world building how does it compare to what you remember from what they did with Rebels Re- well Rebels is sort of um, the alpha of all of this it's the Rebels
1: was so intimate because you've got a certain cast and they've got this playground which is basically the the backdrop setting for the original trilogy or the lead up to the original trilogy, so it's very tricky to do that because these are characters that are in the newer sequel era and we mm-hmm. don't really see much of them. Poe shows up a couple times, voiced by Oscar Isaac in it, and he's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mentioned Kylo Ren, but we don't see him. Captain Phasma shows up here and there, so that's great. But we don't have 40 plus years of history associated with this particular era of the timeline, it's a little more daunting. Mm-hmm. But what we do have is we got a lot of BB 8, we've got a lot of heart with Christopher Sean playing Kaz. And so I think that what they're able to do is start to create sort of a new atmosphere in Star Wars. And and I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but, but it is starting to work, albeit at a much different emotional tone.
0: Did you binge it? I
1: did. I watched about five or six of them the other day.
0: Interesting, because I'm an old terrestrial television guy, so I've been like an idiot watching them at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. And it's been interesting watching them sort of roll out the story and show conflicted characters and deepening them and that sort of thing. So did you also see sort of the teaser trailer of where they're going with the second half of the season?
1: Oh yeah, because we got to see general Hux's speech from a different perspective and that really raises the cost because that's right before the destruction of Hosnian prime and the surrounding planet. So if that's where they're going and that's how close we are in the timeline, then we've got some major excitement coming our way. I
0: agree. I agree. Well, uh, all right. Anyway, to get back to the episode nine now, though, why did Disney take a pass on, on getting the commercial for episode nine on this year's Super Bowl? Yeah, the matchup was a factor. Likewise, the $5,250,000 price point. And let's not forget about that. Disney Studios has some very expensive, high profile productions that it needs to promote. Well, ahead of episode nine. I mean, face it, that doesn't open in theaters till December 20th of this year, and that's a full six months before Toy Story 4. In fact, the friend I was talking with at the studio basically said that you have to think of this from kind of an air traffic controller at O'Hare. You have all of these giant planes that you have to land, and each of them need their attention and need a clear runway and all that, but... The thing is that, yes, episode nine is coming, but it's that much further out. And, you know, there are these other planes that have to be landed first. When you get right down to it, what's really going on with episode nine? In fact, Dan, to give you complete credit, because you were the one who said early on that you believed the trailer for episode nine would be held back till celebration. And that's what I just got confirmed this past week.
1: That's good. I'm glad to hear that as, as a fan. I think it's it's better that way. I, what are the reasons they gave?
0: They've opted to show it first to the real fans, the true fans, the people who travel you know, to Illinois to, to be there for all four days, of, of four days or three days for celebration. It's It's four, April 11th to the 15th. There we go. But to be honest, a lot of what's going on here is Disney is genuinely rattled by the reaction to Last Jedi. A lot of the stuff that was said online after the fact about Grumpy Luke or, you know, the whole Rose Tico situation, the feeling now is that Disney needs to get Star Wars' most passionate diehard fans back on the reservation. They need to get all these people solidly behind Episode Nine, telling their friends and family that they need to see the last and of the Star Wars saga. Disney is still spooked by the box office for Solo, a Star Wars story. That film didn't meet a single one of its financial projections, and that shook Disney's board of directors, who are in the process of spending 1.5 billion dollars to build 600 million of that's going to uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the one that's being built out in Anaheim. 900 million is going to Galaxy's Edge, the one that's being built at Disney's Hollywood Studios, but that's largely because of the additional costs and connective tissue for the Star Wars Hotel. And back in 1982, Disney spent $1.2 billion. But that got them a whole theme park. That got them Epcot, 300 acres of ride shows and attractions, not two lands that are just 14 acres. Again, a hotel with 100 rooms. The word you're not allowed to use in the company right now is star wars fatigue in fact that's the genuine fear really? is that yeah the financial they're worried about the financial community picking up on that especially out ahead of the opening of galaxy's edge so that's why going into celebration they want every fan who sees this trailer to just love 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 it to just go out and evangelize because you know it's there are so many Things already moving to promote Galaxy's Edge. In fact, can can you talk a little bit about the Marvel comic book announcement and the the Disney press thing that just came down the pike? Yeah, the the Marvel Comics announcement, that came out last week.
1: And basically that was sort of the start for us of what we're going to experience. It's going to be a a miniseries called Galaxy's Edge. Imagine that. What a clever title. And it's basically going to cover an which is a, a hammerhead. Mm-hmm. Creature if people know from the cantina and if you go to our coffee with Kenobi page it does show you a little bit about some images that they've already detailed there but it's going to cover basically some of the denizens of that of that community besides galaxy's edge which that starts April 24th 2019 uh, I can read the description it's Blackspire outpost has long been frequented by smugglers merchants and travelers from every corner of the galaxy looking to make their score on the infamous black market or experience the exotic thrills the remote world of Batuu alone has to offer. Aliens like the infamous Doc Andar, a proprietor of rare and one-of-a-kind antiquities, thrives on the unique opportunities which abound on the lawless Outpost at the very edge of Wild Space, this all-new miniseries from Marvel writer, Marvel writer, excuse me, Ethan Sachs and artist Will Sliney. And they both have uh, a lot of credibility in the comic book world. So basically, that's an opportunity for them, of course, much like we'll experience when we go through Galaxy's Edge of having different people coming in from different aspects of the globe or the galaxy, if you will. And he's going to be the storyteller, which is great. But we've got Delilah Dawson, who wrote the Phasma novel. She has a novel coming out called Black Spire, which comes out September 3rd of 2019. And it's it's been described as a prequel to the Disney theme parks experience. And it says that General Leia Organa has dispatched her top spy to 2 in a desperate search for resistance allies. So we've got a lot of potential there. Then August 6th, a crash of fate. This is a Disney Lucasfilm press, one It's uh, more of a young adult novel. And the description there is, Izzy and Jules were best friends till Izzy's family abruptly left Batuu when she was six. Now she's back and Jules, the boy who never left, is unsure what to make of her. While on the run from vengeful smugglers and an angry pirate. The two friends will come to terms with who they are and what they mean to each other. But then we've got our third one, our trifecta. This is called Star Wars Myths and Fables. This is August 6, 2019. And this is a middle grade novel. And it's here the thrilling space tales, fables, and myths that are told in a galaxy far, far away. The book features two stories that take place on the remote outer rim world of Batuu plus many other untold tales from the edge of the galaxy is lushly illustrated in a style that pays homage to real-world children's classics. And there's an excerpt on Star Wars.com. By the way, the cover for this thing looks like Star Wars and Dungeons and & Dragons had a baby. And it's fantastic. Yeah. It's got a Jedi standing there with a blue lightsaber outstretched with this crate Dragon. I'm assuming it's a stunning piece of art.
0: Only a Disney can do this because got Disney with this relationship with Marvel... Can launch these limited series of six comic books, or it can yeah. turn to the folks at Disney Press and can put together the series of books that were going to help support and you know the launch of Galaxy's Edge. And
1: it's amazing you you get to do homework before you go because you were living the prequel and then you get to experience what you just read. I I didn't I don't know why I never thought about them doing this, but I think it's brilliant and excites me because I've had a little bit of Star Wars malaise here and there. Recently, Mm -hmm. this is a shot to the arm, and I haven't even stepped foot in that park yet.
0: Now, speaking of times when the Walt Disney Company was very, very nervous, on the second (laughs) half of today's show, we're going to talk about 1995, which was when the mouse had spent the then astronomical sum of $100 million to build a cutting-edge attraction for Disneyland Park. The company felt that it had to go all out for the opening of Indiana Jones Adventure. So what did they do? Would you believe a halftime show? at the Super Bowl. More in a minute. And we're back. The thing we're about to talk about, you can watch yourselves, folks, which is the halftime show from the 1995 Super Bowl.
1: (laughs) What were your impressions? This is right before we started recording. I said, "I must, Jim. I must really like you because I actually watched that entire thing. I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan, maybe more so at least the character than I am any Star Wars character. But this mm-hmm. was pretty brutal. It, it's you said 1995. and I remember that Chargers 49ers Super Bowl really well because that was a, that 49ers offense was a powerhouse. But boy, oh, yeah. that it's brutal. It's definitely brutal. <laughs> I appreciate the care that went into it,
0: though. The indie stuff is is." pretty awesome, but woof. Well, no, Disney wanted this to sell the opening of the Indiana Jones Adventure, which, by the way, the the Super Bowl was January 29th of that year, I want to say. And less than four weeks, five weeks later, the Indiana Jones Adventure opens at Disneyland Park. So this was a crucial part of the lead up to that. And the Indiana Jones Adventure was... Was something that had been in development at Disney for, in fact, it, 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 so they were talking about the Disney decade, starting in January of 1990. This was always in the mix about, oh my God, we're going to do this indie ride. But it took them a while to find a proper ride system. It took them the right story to tell. And construction gets underway in August of 1993. This attraction, all by itself, takes a year and a half to build, and Disneyland's never built anything like this before that to carve out space for adventureland they had to reroute the jungle cruise they had to shut down the disneyland railroad for months we're talking about 50,000 square feet so so big they had to build it they had to literally go under the bill firm and build most of it out in the the old parking lot and by the way you've been in the attraction right
1: oh my gosh it's it, before i rode flight of passage it was my favorite ride at any disney attraction i um, love it i love it have you
0: seen the parking lot sign? Oh yeah. Okay, so you know how to tell people where to look or where to find it, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so.
1: It's pretty great, and there's there's all fun. There's a lot of hidden gems on that thing.
0: Oh yeah, no doubt. In order to pay tribute to the fact that they had to go out into the parking lot to build this thing, I want to say it's the projection room, right in the queue. I believe so. Yeah, the, the way that yeah yeah, I'm really
1: articulate about this, as you can tell.
0: No, 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 I'm putting you on the spot here. But if I remember correctly, in fact, the Images were pretty clever about the way they hit it. You walk into the, the room and it's, it's where Sala is sort of doing the pre-show. It's a, it's a black and white film, but there's a projector that's supposedly running the pre-show safety spiel. The only way you get to see this parking lot sign is you have to sort of turn around in the queue and look above the projector, which, is, of course, is throwing light in your eyes, which makes it hard to see. But right behind that, if you, you look above that toward the ceiling, you can see aside from the old Eeyore section of the parking lot. So they close, the parking lot at, at Disneyland closed January of 1998. We jumped to June of 1994. We are less than, what, Uh, nine months out now from the opening of the attraction. Disney's put up $100 million for this cutting edge ride system. Amazing attraction with effects upon effects upon effects. Oh, it's wonderful. But Disney also knows just over shoulder, Universal is working on its own killer attraction, the Jurassic Park River Ride, uh, which will open in June of 1996. So it's one of these things where this ride... Must be bigger, must be better. We're first through the door. This has got to be a hit. And so they decide from the promotion side of the thing, we have to do the biggest promotion we've ever done for the opening of a theme park ride in the history of the company. And they bring in Rick Sordell. Rick had just come off of working on Beauty and the Beast for Broadway. And he gets invited to sit in a shred where it's just basically, okay, we have the Indiana Jones thing opening up. What can we do to promote this? It's one of these things where it's like, well, why don't we just, you know, we do the Indiana Jones stunt show at Disney's Hollywood Studios. We've been doing that since 89. Why don't we take that and do something like that at the the Super Bowl? And somebody then comes up with the idea that, okay, so instead of a, a golden idol that Indy is going after and gets chased by a boulder, you know, what if... He's trying to rescue the Super Bowl trophy. Hope he's a Bears fan. And then from there, it's just sort of like, and of course, you know, well, it can't just be a guy running around the stadium with this. You know, there's got to be some entertainment value. So they loop in Patty LaBelle, who I'm not entirely sure what Patty is playing in. You know, she's a priestess. You just watched this. What? How would you describe? it?
1: I thought it was sort of like a more mature version of of Willie Scott from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I mean, you've even got okay. sort of a mum, uh, like not a mumra, a mola ram thing at the beginning.
0: Well, yeah, and and Tony Bennett is definitely playing it in his part of it. If it's a '40s nightclub, but the rest of this thing is sort of an Indiana Jones. I mean, there's three giant action scenes that they're staging in the middle of Joe Roby Stadium. They start casting, and and of course, it's kind of a gimme that all right, well, are. we're going to go for indie. It's like, well, let's go to the Indiana Jones at Epic Stunt Spectacular at, at what was then Disney MGM Studios. So they get Brian Friday to come be indie at the Super Bowl. On the other hand, for Marion, I I don't understand why they have they had this whole cast full of Marions, but they hire this gymnast Kathy Marshall who who had. No stunt experience at all. And so you know, she talks about her first day on the set. She had to climb the side of this 22-foot-tall building and a rickety ladder. It's rocking in the winds. And she says, you know, that she was so scared you could you could see her legs shaking. And I guess that brings us to talking about the set, which had to be mobile. Had to roll out in the middle of Joe Roby stadium very quickly. The set is made up of all these huge wagons, each about 10 feet long, 20 feet wide, and they all come together like a jigsaw puzzle but uh, none of them are motorized disney has recruited high school kids church groups you know they're the ones who push all these things out at the right moment and like i said three complex fight scenes so they start set construction in the fall uh, rehearsals on site and when i say on site i mean out in the joe roby parking lot those start in January. But for the choreographed numbers, they've got dancers up in New York. And for the stunt coordination, they've got people at Disney, MGM, who are working in the actual Indiana Jones set. And this is all pre-internet. By the way, what did you think of the Indian Marion skydiving in at the top of the show?
1: I thought that was pretty fun. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of 2019, but I, I don't know how it was received when it aired, but mm-hmm. they put a lot of care into it, and I mean... If I was watching it in as a kid and I saw Indiana Jones parachuting, I I would think that was the coolest thing ever.
0: If you think backwards from this, the way skydiving works is in order to hit their marks in the stadium as the show is underway, somebody had to tell them two and three minutes out, jump out of the plane, right, and and hope that the, the halftime show, hope that they came back for a commercial in time, hope that the halftime show is underway, and I guess the thing of of skydiving is that you can, in fact, hover, get a few stick your arms and your legs out, but not for so long. But anyway, okay, so it gets underway. One of the high points is that Marion sets a high priest on fire at one point.
1: As you do, yeah.
0: This is veteran stuntman Dale Girard, who's doing this stunt for the show. They've covered him with this chemical called Zellgel. It's what you use to lower the skin temperature... To prevent burns, so it lowers, lowers your skin temperature down to 86 degrees, and so the poor guy, they're backstage, they slather him up, they get him ready for the stunt. By the time it's he's ready to perform, the poor guy's got hyperthermia. So you know he's his teeth are chattering, he's shaking, and you know it, it's he tells the story. The only time he was comfortable that day was when they set him on fire. So he dives off the stage into that pit, and then evidently he spent the rest of the Super Bowl wrapped in space blankets drinking hot coffee.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: So we get to the 40s dance club. They've got the Vince Lombardi trophy back, and Tony Bennett sings. By the way, Tony Bennett sang live, whereas Patti LaBelle did some of the world's worst lip-syncing.
1: You can you can totally tell, too. <laughs>
0: But but you notice how during the 40s club thing, a brawl breaks out and people are tossing the trophy back and forth. And again, they'd only had one rehearsal. you know One wow. rehearsal actually inside the stadium, and that was literally just done so Patti LaBelle and Tony Bennett would know which cameras to play to. Patti LaBelle, she was wearing heels, and evidently there's a point where two dancers have to help her up a ramp because oh, yeah. it's... She can't do it at all. She's in heels. And during the rehearsal, they were tossing the Vince Lombardi trophy around. And poor Katie Marshall, the the, the woman who played Marion, got hit flat in the face with the trophy. So she's covered with makeup because she actually has two black eyes from where she was hit in the face with the Vince Lombardi trophy. But the best part I'm saving for the last year because it's a Super Bowl show and it ends with pyrotechnics. And because it's Indiana Jones and because it's Disney, it's got to be the biggest pyrotechnics that they've ever done up until that time. And Tyler Wire, who'd coordinated the effects for the halftime show, the NFL kept going, you got to show us the pyrotechnics. you got to show us the pyrotechnics. But Tyler knew if he showed them all of the effects at once, they'd say no because it would be too much. And so what he did, he said, well, here's one of the effects I want to do. And oh, oh and wait a day, and oh, here's another effect I want to do. And everyone's like, you know, cumulatively, oh, well, that'll be cool. And so it comes to the end of the show. They fire off all of the pyro. It creates so much smoke. They have to wait five minutes for the smoke to clear out of the stadium. They actually delay the start of the second half of the Super Bowl because everyone is coughing and choking and can't see the field.
1: Other than that, it was a great evening. <laughs>
0: Yes, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the park? I
1: was just going to say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, but long story short, it works. Uh, Indiana Jones Adventure opens at Disneyland is a smash hit. We've seen the ride replicated or, or with slight deviations at Tokyo Disney Seas. And obviously out ahead of the Indiana Jones 5, which I guess now is 2021, Yeah, there have been some talk about, well, what else can we do in the parks with Indy? And,
1: I sure hope they bring
0: that over to Florida. There has been some talk about doing that. The problem is it's the exact same ride system as Dinosaur. In fact, it's not even the exact same ride system, it's the exact same ride layout. If you overlay the track layout for Countdown to Extinction at Disney's Animal Kingdom and overlay it for the the Disneyland version of Indiana Jones Adventure, it's the same. Oh, so it really wouldn't take that much. I mean, they'd have to do
1: some major overhaul of the architecture, but they've got a lot of the building blocks there. That
0: they do. That they do. But anyway, who knows? If they do another Indiana Jones attraction for the parks, maybe we'll get another Super Bowl show. Dare to dream. (laughs) Okay. And if people need to hear fun things, interesting stories before they dream, before they go to bed at night, Dan, where can they find all of the great stories that you're out there on the web sharing?
1: Well, certainly. Thank you for that. We can be found every week at coffeewithkenobi.com, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We have a Patreon show as well, CWK Prover, which comes out every Sunday, which you can find at patreon.com slash coffeewithkenobi. And you can find my writings on stars.com and IGN.
0: Now, on my side of the fence, I got the Disney Dish podcast that I do with Lentesta. I got the marvelous... Disney podcast that I do with the amazing Aaron Adams, who, who, by the way, edits this podcast and is probably going to go at this one with a machete. (laughs) Got the Universal Giant podcast that I do with Dustin Fuse. And we have the fine tuning podcast that I do with Drew Taylor. That's way too much stuff to listen to.
1: Oh, a lot of, I love, I love your shows. I'm happy that I get to be a part of them. You're
0: the one who keeps us on the straight and narrow here. By the way, it would be wonderful if you would go at iTunes and rate our show, you know, let folks know about what we've been doing in the, the podcast realm. And I guess for now, we'll close down for a bit here, folks, but we'll be back with a new Looking at Lucasfilm in the not-too-distant future. So until then, take care. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, One of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.